Well, today I have the privilege of continuing uh, our Advent sermon series, and it's a series that we've simply been calling A Season of Hope. And for those of you who uh, you're not familiar with Advent, Advent is like the four weeks in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and Advent is a season observed by Christians all over the world, and it's a time of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, and like we say every single year, in, during Advent, we do three very important things. The first thing we do is we thank God for Christ's first coming. We celebrate His second. Com- I'm sorry. We celebrate His presence among us today. Uh, the fact that God is near, that He's acquainted with our issues, He's not unfamiliar with what we're struggling with. And the third thing we do is we prepare for His second coming. In other words, we live like there's something more to this story. And that's what we do during Advent. And here we are in the very middle of December. You know, Christmas is literally just like a week and a half away. And all the decorations are going up. The snow is falling. Undoubtedly, you've, you've started your Christmas shopping already. We're in the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season already. And I think that's fine. I think that's wonderful. But like I said last week, it's very easy for us to lose sight of what this holiday is all about. Even those of us who read the Bible, we're acquainted with Jesus, we follow him, we know his story. Somehow we forget sometimes that this season is all about him and not all of the fuss and the hustle and bustle. Like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. In fact, I'm happy that the world is making a fuss about something that we hold so dear. But I think it's very important for us to remember, always remember, what this season is really about. And the season is about hope. And last week, we defined hope. We asked and answered the question, what is hope? Where does it come from? Now, I feel the need always to distinguish hope and and wishing. You know, hope is not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is uh, based on something uncertain, something you wish happened. I really wish that this thing's happened. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I sure really do wish it happened, right? It's different from hope. Hope is based on something certain, right? Something we know to happen, and we're looking for it. I love that uh, Sigmund Freud, the great psychoanalyst, says that the two basic things that we need as humans is love and hope. Well, he actually says love and work. And what he means by work is just a reason to get out of bed in the morning, a reason, something to look forward to, something to aspire to. And if you know people who don't have any reason to get out of bed in the morning, they don't have any hope, they don't have anything that drives them, nothing to look forward to, it's a really, really bleak and helpless existence. My heart breaks for hopeless people, and your heart should break for hopeless people because we know where true hope comes from, and much of the world simply goes without it. So hope is essential. It's absolutely essential. And last week, we looked at this sort of four-step or four-station sort of circuit to this thing that we call hope, and we said that first hope begins with the realization that God makes a promise. That's where hope starts. God makes a promise, and we said hope starts with a promise. Hope doesn't just pop in your head out of nowhere. It's not just an idea that comes to you in the night. Hope comes as a result of a promise made by a credible source. And faith believes his promise, that God is faithful to keep his promise. And faith believes that, and the next step in that is hope. And that hope anticipates the fulfillment of the promise that God made. And the final step in that, which we spent a lot of time on last week, is that patience quietly waits. And that quietly waits there is a more active term than we might assume by just reading it. That, faith, that quietly waits basically means faithful occupation. 
We're leaning into this hope that we found. We're occupying faithfully until we see the fulfillment of what God has said and what he has spoken to us. And last week we talked about hope, uh, the promise of hope. And today I want to continue this series by talking with a simple message that I've simply called Hope Says Yes. If we truly believe that God is who he says he is, if we truly believe that God is incapable of doing anything other than fulfilling his promises, we truly believe that God is a trustworthy source, and we hope in that, we believe in that, we look forward to that, as hope does, and we patiently and quietly wait or faithfully occupy until we see the fulfillment of that promise, then the next step in that is that hope breeds a yes in your soul. Now, many of us have grown accustomed to saying yes with our mouth. We sing yes in our songs, and all our songs we sing, Lord, I give myself away, I surrender to you, all this business. But what I'm talking about is a yes in your soul, in your guts, to say yes to you. And I suppose that if we truly hoped in the promises of God, we truly hoped and believed that God is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says, then that would move us to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to him deep in our souls. And today we'll look at two of the primary characters in this great Christmas story. The main character, obviously, is Jesus, but I think there's two other really important characters that we'll look at today, and that's simply the story of Mary and Joseph, Jesus' earthly parents. To look at their life and to look at their example, we see a story of faithfulness. We see a story of surrender, a story of sacrifice, a story of willful acceptance of God's perfect yet challenging will for their lives. And we can see ourselves in the pages of those stories as well. We're going to look this morning at two passages of scripture. The first will be in Luke chapter 1, if you have your Bibles today with you, if you return there. If um, you're following along on your phone, that's fine as well. If you want to put your finger there and get Matthew chapter 1, we'll start at verse 18 there. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be projecting the words on the screens in front of you today. Before I begin, let me just pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this season. I thank you for what it means. I thank you for the hope, Lord, that uh, stirs in us when we consider your promises. We consider, Lord, that you do what you say. Lord, I just pray for those among us today and those that we know that are hopeless, that are struggling with just finding a reason to get out of bed, Lord, and get on with life. Lord, I know that that's a, a, a meaningless and sort of desperate existence, Father. And I just pray that you would speak hope and that you would speak life and you would speak faith today. Father, I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Lord, would you move me out of the way this morning that your truth and your light might shine through? God, would you stir a yes in our souls today? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Luke chapter 1. This is a very important part of the Christmas story. And we're starting at verse 26. If you read along with me, I would appreciate it. Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Elizabeth is Mary's cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her, excuse me, and said, Greetings, favorite woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think, What the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. 
The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the, the Most High will overshadow you so the baby to be born will be holy and will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she's now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Listen, I really like this story because I think it's a faithful story of a very very important example of what it looks like to be surrendered and submit it to God. And sometimes I forget how young Mary was. Sometimes I forget just how young she was and how that makes the story even more remarkable. But in this passage, we see some key details about this young girl named Mary. We know that she's Elizabeth's cousin. And Elizabeth also had her own miraculous encounter with God. And she's set to give birth to a child who will become, you know, John the Baptist, which will be the person who will go before Jesus and prepare the way for him. So she's Elizabeth's cousin. She's from Nazareth. She's a virgin. She's engaged to this wonderful guy named Joseph, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. And we learn very early that Mary is a favored woman. And she's favored. I'm sure she's a lovely woman. I'm sure she's favored by her family and friends. But the most important aspect of her being favored is that she's favored by God. In fact, it says it right here in verse 28. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And as I read this faithful story, it is no mystery to me why Mary was so favored or why she was so uh, chosen and picked by God and why God loved her so much and why God chose her to do this wonderful thing in birthing the Messiah. But there were some problems with this. Uh, as the angel began to recount what would happen to her, Mary was kind of confused. And I think Luke captures Mary's initial reaction. Gabriel says, Greetings, favorite woman, the Lord is with you. Verse 29 says, Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. So she's kind of confused by what the angel is talking about. And the angel proceeds to give her her assignment. So we see Mary's assignment in verse 30. He says, don't be afraid, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. So this is Mary's assignment. Simple enough, right? You're a virgin, but you're going to have a baby. Uh, you're young and you're betrothed to be married to this wonderful guy. That's fine and good. But let's throw a wrench in this thing and you're going to have a baby. That's her assignment. I heard a preacher say recently that God loves us all very much and he has a very difficult plan for our life. <laughs> and some of you laugh because you're living in that, right? You understand. You wanted me to stop at the whole God loves you part. So, preacher, if you want to fill these seats, you better leave out the second half of that. But the reality is that God loves you, and he has a very difficult plan for your life. And I see that Mary is living this out right before our very eyes. This is Mary's assignment. Scriptures tell us that she's favored. Let's look at her fiancé, Joseph. This is Joseph's story. Matthew chapter 1. We'll start at verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged 
to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and, gave, uh, and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Another very imp- uh, important character in this whole story, and I feel in all the record of Scripture, and I feel like when we approach this story, sometimes we've read it so much that we don't see the richness that lies within these pages. And sometimes we just sort of glance over the richness of what we find in here. So what we see when we read this short passage about Joseph is that he's, he's from the family of David, just like the prophets had spoke. He's engaged to this wonderful woman, uh, Mary. Joseph was a good man. He was a godly man. But Joseph finds himself in quite a pickle. There's a dilemma here. His young wife that he's engaged to has come up pregnant. Now that's scandalous in today's terms, but it was extra scandalous. I mean, this was fodder for like a soap opera or something in first century. This woman that he's engaged to be married to comes up pregnant. This was not good. This was unbelievably scandalous. It would have been devastating. It would have been utterly embarrassing to him. And because of this unfortunate event, the scriptures tells us that Joseph is willing to do what any reputable man would do. He's going to break the engagement. Now, he could have done so dishonorably. He could have made a big fuss about it. But we know that Joseph is a good man. It's probably give us a little clue as to why God chose this guy in the first place. He's going to do a noble thing. And he's going to put her away quietly. Not going to post it on Facebook. He's not going to, you know, publicize his, his disdain for what he assumes she's done. He's going to break the engagement. And, this, and we can assume that Joseph got this news about Mary from probably Mary. You know, he knew about the pregnancy. Presumably she told him. And, you know, for some reason, we can just kind of assume that Joseph didn't believe uh, the account that she had given him. Otherwise, why would he divorce her? So he's going to to deal with this situation uh, honorably. But this is Joseph's assignment. I'm just going to read for you his assignment specifically. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in his room and said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded, and he took Mary as his wife. Now, when I look at these two folks side by side, again, I've set them forth as an example for us of what it means to say yes what it means to be surrendered to Jesus and what it means to be surrendered to God's plan. When I look at these two folks side by side, they, you know, I, I see them as a power couple, a power couple. And I know that you consider a power couple to be a doctor like married to a lawyer, right? Socialites, people with lots of money. Say, man, if those two people got together. That's a power couple, man. They can, they can tear something up. When I look at Mary and Joseph, I see a power couple because I see striking similarities between the two of them. 
And when we look at Mary and Joseph, we see the type of people that God uses to get his stuff done in the earth. The type of people who have the resolve and have the connection to him and the surrender in their, the surrender in their hearts that God uses to get stuff done in the earth, to get his stuff done, to get his work done. I want to be like these folks. I want to emulate these guys. Mary and Joseph knew that their life was not their own. They had pledged their lives to the true and living God. They knew that they worked for him. And no matter what the task, no matter what the assignment, they were holy gods. They were holy gods. To look at their life and to look at their example, no doubt they hoped in what God had promised. No doubt they hoped and they knew, man, we heard when we went to the temple about this Messiah that would come. We heard when we heard the scriptures read about this Messiah that would come and he would be a great king and he would come and forgive the sins of the world and he would be awesome. They heard about this. And so when this is ringing in their ears, perhaps it's awakening something that they were always looking for. The year after year, time would pass without it happening. And this hope probably began to stir in their hearts and they began to realize that this thing is really happening, even though it's going to completely tear our lives up going to completely wreck our plans. You know, our picture of what our life would be like as an engaged couple, the picture of what our first few years of marriage would look like, our picture of perhaps what it would look like to have that first child, all those things just got blown up with one visitation from an angel. But the faithful submission to what God had set before them, regardless of all of the costs, regardless of all of the costs. We're talking about what it means this morning to say yes to God. And I just submit to you today that to say yes to God is going to really cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. And when we look at this story, we consider their costs, and their costs mirror our costs as we follow Jesus and as we say yes to him. And I would submit to you today that everything that's valuable to me cost me something. Everything that's valuable to me cost me something. In fact, the things that came cheap, the things that didn't cost me anything, well, they were more trouble than they were worth. Those things that came easy, the things that, you know, I had to find a shortcut to get, those things weren't very meaningful at all. But when I consider the things that I count very important to me, they always, always cost me something. And we're talking about what it means to say yes to Jesus, and I submit to you again today that to say yes to Jesus means that you have to say no to something else. To engage something means you disengage other things. To walk towards something means that your back is to something else. And Jesus requires us to say yes to him. But it's going to cost us something. And when we look at this faithful story, we see that it cost them something. First thing it cost them is options. It cost them some options. This is the first thing that you'll discover when you're following Jesus. If you're doing it for real, it's going to cost you some options. But we live in a Western society where we, we crave options. We like the buffet, man, because we can go through there and they've got seven different kinds of salad, eight different types of ham. Listen, we don't want to go to a regular restaurant. We want to go where there's options, man. Give me options. And anything that threatens our access to options is, is, is not very favorable. We just as soon leave it. That's why many people poorly engage Jesus or leave him all uh, altogether because to really follow Jesus, to really say yes to him means to say no to a whole lot of other stuff. 
When I consider this story of Mary and Joseph and the fact that they accepted what Jesus, uh, what the Lord has set before them, it really cost them some options. Second thing that I see it cost them is the ideal circumstances. We really like ideal circumstances. When we lay down and we dream about our life, we dream about our future, somehow we don't really think about all of the difficult things that we'll have to deal with, right? We don't think about the sudden tragedies that might happen or the unfortunate occurrences or the struggles and the things that we'll have to fight and strive for. When we're dreaming, man, we're, we're dreaming about perfect scenarios, perfect sunny days, you know, bank accounts full of money, you know, cupboards full of supply, right? Somehow we realize if we truly say yes to Jesus, what that means is that we're saying, you know, we're, we're, we're really to, 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 to leave the ideal scenarios and the ideal circumstances behind. Because we find that God usually isn't found in our comfortable places, but rather he's found in those places that will cause us to press into him and lean into him. Mary and Joseph, I'm sure they're discovering that these ideal circumstances won't likely play out as they've said yes to God's plan. Some of the other costs means it might cost you your reputation. Here the Lord comes along and says, guess what? You're pregnant now. I know you're a virgin. I know you're engaged, but you're pregnant now. Thus saith the Lord. Go in, in peace, right? Devastating, man. And even though they have the certainty that this is God's plan, and God's will and his purpose for their life, they still have to live among their family, still have to live among their friends, still have to go and work and play and do their own thing, right? And you know people are whispering. When did Mary and Joseph get married? And that kid's a little older than that, isn't he? They're doing the math and they're calculating the months and they're hushing about it and they're whispering about it, probably, maybe not, but probably, if I know the nature of people. And I've discovered, man, that following Jesus might put you on a list. <laughs> following Jesus might get you uninvited to some places, if you're doing it for real. Following Jesus might put you at odds with your family, might put you at odds with your friends. It might mess up your reputation in the eyes of men. It might cost you a little bit of that. And those are the costs that we have to consider as we consider what it means to really follow Jesus. Another cost is the cost that might cost you convenience. It might cost you convenience. And we live in a world where we're, we're just addicted to comfort, addicted to just bringing all this cotton and soft, pillowy things around us so that, you know, we don't have to really deal with anything difficult. We've surrounded ourselves with the snacks of life, and we want our drink close so we don't have to get up. We want the remote and everything. So this is the life that we've built for ourselves. And I watch people self-destruct as they construct this cushion around themselves. And they don't stop there. They build a cushion around their children so that children don't learn to, to deal with the hard knocks of life and the reality of life that is unpleasant sometimes. It's unfriendly sometimes. And the plan of God is a little rocky and it's a little stony sometimes. And we're addicted to comfort and we're not willing to pay what it costs to say yes to Jesus. Sometimes we'll always remain stuck if we're not willing to pay the cost of convenience. When I look at this faithful story, and I look at these faithful people and this example that they set before us, I see Mary and Joseph are willing to pay the cost of what it costs to say yes. And when I look at both their stories side to side, I see that they both said a resounding yes to God.
And not only do they say yes, but they show us what true surrender really looks like. The angel comes to Mary and says, hey, this is how this is going to play out. You're going to, you're going to conceive a child. And Mary says, listen, I don't know a whole lot about this whole baby-making stuff. But uh, I know enough to know that certain things have to happen before certain other things happen. <laughs> so she asks the faithful question that's often confused with doubt. And she says in verse 34, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. And we've seen in other passages of Scripture where God tells somebody that something's going to happen or they laugh or they have this sort of, you know, cynical response. And God's like, okay, you're not going to talk for a while because you didn't believe me. Right? But this isn't necessarily what happens here. Mary's saying, oh, I trust that this is from God, but I have a, I have a few questions. I've got to explain this to some folks, namely my fiancé. Please, how is this going to happen? I want to be obedient. I want to walk this out. I want to work this out. Please give me some more details. The angel explains to her exactly what's going to happen. And this is her faithful response. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left. Listen, somebody comes to you and they drop that on you. She's got one question. And her answer is, you know, I love what the King James Version says, may, be, may it be unto me everything that you have spoken. In other words, in, in so much as it involves me, let's make this thing happen. And so much as it has to do with me, let's make this thing happen. And this reaches back to last week and it deals with that whole concept of what it means to quietly wait or faithfully occupy until the promise happens. Mary says, okay, what's my role in this? How this thing going to play out? And as it was explained to her, she says, do, deal, let's do it. Let's do it. I know people, seasoned Christians who have been asked to do much less, wrestle much more than this little girl did. It's a remarkable tale. It's a remarkable story of faithfulness and surrender. Mary said yes. Now, Joseph, you know, as a man, I just identify with him just a little bit more. And, uh, you know, a lot of stuff got dropped into his lap in a you know, short amount of time. You understand this? So the angel tells Joseph, hey, listen, man, um, your wife's going give to give birth to a baby, and it's not, it's not going to be yours. And I want you to be cool with that. And I want you to raise a child that's not your own. And to boot, it's going to be the son of the living God, so don't screw up. <laughs> Try not to mess up the Messiah, you know? Try not to mishandle him, you know? I get nervous holding my own kid. Like, what, what must it have been like to, like, you know, hold the Messiah? Like, how do you tell the Messiah to stop, you know, and be quiet and sit in time out, you know? But this is a huge deal, man. It's a huge deal. And my head goes off, by the way, to, to step parents, you know? I, you know? You, you're, you're unsung heroes in my, in my book. Something takes something remarkable to raise a child that's not your own and to deal with some of the stuff that comes along with that. So I salute you today. I get back to this, though. Um, Joseph is a remarkable guy. Gets this huge thing dropped in his lap, and this was his response. Joseph woke up. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. What a remarkable response. Now, the, the scripture doesn't include a whole lot of detail of what happened the night before he woke up. 
And I'm probably guessing that he probably thought about it and prayed and just maybe thought about the implications of all that. But nonetheless, he woke up the next morning and said, let's do this. Let's lean into this. This thing is going to happen. The word of the Lord has spoken. I am his servant. Let's roll with it. So he woke up. He took Mary as his wife. Didn't have sex with her. Amen. And he named the boy Jesus. Named the boy Jesus. He said, Jesus, man, why'd you name him Jesus? That boy, name him Joseph, man. That's your boy. The angel said, name him Jesus. I'm naming him Jesus. What's the big picture here? How do we put this all together? You know, it's striking to me how God deals with and interacts with his people. And I think this story gives us a really good snapshot of that. I like how the angel approaches them both. He didn't ask them any questions. He didn't ask them if this was something that they were interested in doing, if this was perhaps something that, you know, I'm just pitching this idea to a couple of families, and, you know, if you like it, just take it, you know. That wasn't the case at all. But you look throughout the whole record of Scripture, and you look at how God deals with the folks that belong to him, the guys that work for him. Jonah, Old Testament prophet, he didn't go to Jonah and say, listen, um, I'm shopping this idea around to a few people. I got these folks in Nineveh. They're wicked. Go tell them I'm going to destroy them. But before you do that, just, just look at your daybook and see if you can do this in the next couple months. I mean, is this something like you would rather do? Right? The book of Jonah doesn't open that way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh and tell these folks this, that, and the other. That's how he said it. Went to his servant Moses. He didn't say, well, Moses, listen, man, um, I got some things that I'm trying to figure out. I need some work done. Would you be interested in going and, you know, liberating my people? You know, have you, have you been boning up on your, you know, Toastmaster classes? Have you, how's your public speaking? You know, how is your presence because you're going to go before a king? Listen, can you, can you work this into your schedule? Can you maybe make this happen? Is this something that's okay with you? Didn't come to Moses that way at all. In fact, in spite of the pushback, the Lord says, listen, man, when are you going to understand? This, this is you, man. Your number's been called. You've been picked. You're going to do this. You're going to do it now, or you're going to do it later. Let's move. Let's move. And Moses, through some struggling, he goes. I like how he approaches Saul before he was Paul on the road to Damascus. He says to Paul, listen, man. What, and I'm paraphrasing, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing, man? And what was the Lord saying to them? Boy, this isn't what I made you for. You got the zeal, but you're marching in the wrong direction. You're fighting for, you're fighting for the wrong team. He said, what are you doing, man? He says, listen, go here, here, and there. The dude's going to pray for you, and then get busy, man. Let's get busy with this. Let's do it. And that's, that happens like that over and over and over, all throughout Scripture. Why? Because God understands something that sometimes we don't understand, is that we belong to Him. We forgot what this whole, you know, God, you know, servant relationship, how that works. We forgot that we don't get to see the contract before we sign it. That we don't have to, God didn't have to lay out His plan to us and tell us all the circumstances and see if that fits with our scope and if that fits with our kids' soccer schedule and if that fits with, you know, your career plans and what you'd hope to happen in your future. He doesn't really work that way, man. 
He says, oh, you're a follower of Jesus? You've come into the kingdom? My, your life belongs to me? Fantastic. Here. <laughs> Go and do. Go and be. That's how God deals with us. And his approach has so much identity and so much purpose wrapped up in it. And if you hear one thing that I tell you today, especially you young people up front, understand that God isn't just some big bearded dude that's pulling out of his old grandfather top hat and just playing fast and loose with your life. I need that done. Let me see who I can pull out of the hat and see who can do it, who's available. No, there's divine purpose in you. There's identity in you. And we've been defining identity as what did God have in mind when he created you? That's, that's, that's who you are. That's who you are. I know you're acting kind of silly right now. I know you're rebelling right now. But what you're doing is not who you are. Who you are is who God made you to be. And so much of who God made you to be is so purposeful. It's so specific. He made you to be something very specific. He didn't just pull Mary and Joseph out of the hat. He didn't just approach them just wondering if they would do it. He knew that they would say yes. Because they said yes at the point of surrender. He knew that they would say yes. He wasn't shopping this around. So when he walked up to them, he says, listen, are you guys ready to do what I made you to do? Are you, are you ready to do exactly what I fashioned you, created you? Are you ready to live out your purpose now? Because now's the time. I don't care how young you are, Mary. I don't care how, how sweet and energy you are virgin. It's, t- it's time to go time. The prophets have spoken. It's time for the Messiah to come. You've been made for this. You've been built for this. Will you go? Will you do? There's divine purpose in that. And I'll say that to the youngest person teetering around in kids' church, to the oldest person sitting in this room. God has something for you to do. He has something for you to do. And much of that will be difficult by our own standards. Much of that will be far beyond what we would consider to be uh, uh, um, easy or comfortable. And we must not fear that. And we must not run away from that because where God gives us purpose, where he gives us instruction, he gives us a grace to do what he's called us to do. And I'm so glad that he gives us a grace, man, especially as a church plant. I'm so glad that there's grace to do this. And I see people, they get excited about planning the church, and they say, look, so-and-so did it. That looks really cool. That looks really important. And in some circles, church planning is kind of sexy. So it's like, oh, let me just kind of go and do that. That looks really important. And they almost kill themselves and destroy their marriage and ruin themselves financially because God didn't call them to do that, so he didn't disp- dispense grace to do that. You understand what I'm saying? But I'm here to tell you that anything God has hardwired you for, that he's called you to do, that he's purposed in your heart and in your soul to walk out, he'll give you grace. All you got to do, all you got to do is say yes to him. All you got to do is say yes to him. And I don't mean yes with your mouth. I don't mean yes in your soul. I don't mean yes because that's what everybody else seems to be doing at the church you go to. I'm talking about a yes in your soul, man, because to really hope in what God has said will produce a deep and abounding and abiding, excuse me, and a resounding yes to whatever he says and whatever he wants you to do. Whatever he wants you to do. 
And I would submit to you today that some of you are having very difficult lives, not because the devil's after you, and not because of this and that, not because of your spouse, and not because of your financial situation. You're having a rough go at simply because you're trying to do something that you weren't created to do. You're trying to be something and somebody that God did not create you to be. And it's a miserable existence to try to be something that you're not. You ever try to hammer in a nail with a cotton ball? You're going to be there a while. Why? Because it wasn't made for that. It wasn't made for that. You ever try to do what you're supposed to do with a cotton ball with a hammer? <laughs> That's going to be equally awkward. Because it wasn't made for that, right? So if we understand that God created us for something specific, that he's purposed us to do something, and that he provides grace to do what he's called us to do, then, man, that, should, that ought to produce a yes in our soul today. My question to you, and worship team, you can come up, is where are you today? Where are you today? Where are you on the spectrum of, of yes and surrender and submission? Where are you today? And some of you look down because... You want to say yes, but that thing. You want to say that yes, but maybe that thing happened. You want to say yes, but really got this plans. I really would like to get this done. And the Lord says, when are you going to say yes to me? In your soul, in your guts, when are you going to say yes to me? And God promises you the life that you cannot believe, you will not believe, if you say yes to him. And my prayer is that as we worship, the Lord would just highlight places and spaces in your heart and in your life and in your mind where you're just kind of holding out, where you're kind of just trying to see how this thing plays out. You need a few more details. And I just pray that the Lord would just till the soil of your heart and he would turn up a yes and he would give you the faith and the hope and the courage and the patience to wait faithfully upon him and to lean into all that he has for you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this timeless story. It's more than just a cute story of how you were born, Lord. But we see in these pages, we see in these characters, faithfulness, Lord. Hope. A resolve to follow you and to play our part in this grand story. And Lord, we know that you've called each and every one of us to do something, to be something, Lord. To to live out what this means to follow you and to say yes. So I pray that each and every person in here, Lord, would just come up under the challenge and the conviction of the Holy Spirit today, Father, to do, to lean in to what you've called them to to do, to lean in to who you've called them to be. And Lord, I just pray that we would begin to see the immediate fruit of that obedience as as we live the outworking of the hope that lies within us, Lord, that we would see, really see what that looks like, really see the fruit of that, Lord, and see the sweetness and the richness and the ultimate satisfaction of a life with you as we completely surrender and say yes to you. And Lord, as we worship today, Lord, would you just do a work in our hearts? Or would you do a work in our hearts as we work towards saying, saying yes to you? We ask all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.